my son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials Program, the world opened up. He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities. For exclusive podcasts and more, sign up at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. This week's Law and Order Marathon winner is Emma Christensen of Surrey, British Columbia. Emma will get a marathon decal showing she watched 26.2 hours of her favorite crime show. To be next week's winner, sign up at lawandorderpodcast.com. I'm Kevin Flynn with Rebecca Lavoie and Marsha Chatlin, and these are their stories. You think you know who did it, but you don't know who did it. Law and order, law and order, law and order. It's no ordinary police procedural, baby. It's the FNOG of police procedures, baby. Law and order, law and order, law and order, law and order. These are their stories, these are their stories. Welcome to These Are Their Stories, the podcast about network TV's most enduring crime franchise and the real-life cases that inspired their shows. I'm Kevin Flynn. Each podcast will break down an episode from either Criminal Intent, SVU, or Original Recipe. And today we're looking at Law & Order Season 8, Episode 7, Blood. Wait a minute. That's not right. This prescription's made out to Joshua, but then. He's the father? He's black? Maybe the pharmacy made a mistake. Now, you might remember this episode originally appeared in our premium feed in 2020, and then George Floyd was murdered that week. So we never put the episode in the public feed. It really didn't feel right in the moment for two white people to take part in a discussion about racial identity, even if it was to point out the ham-fisted way it was handled in the 1997 episode of Law & Order. But now racism has been solved, so yay! Mm. But I did go back and re-listen to it. And there is nobody we know that we would rather have had on than our guest and our friend, Dr. Marsha Chatlin. Now, you've heard her a bunch of times on the show, leading academic in American history and African-American studies, Law & Order fan, funny as hell. She won a goddamn Pulitzer last year. And she was the perfect guide for all of us to provide real context and hot takes about this episode, which focuses on a murder suspect who is black and passing as white. Well, she cracked this up, but man, she never stopped teaching and we never stopped learning. Now, I want to play it now, not because the world is better, but because in so many ways the world is worse. And this podcast episode does what we do best on the show, point out the inconsistencies and the weird ways Law & Order tries to be good and sometimes gets it so wrong. In 1997, the writers thought this look at racial identity was progressive. Today, we can look back and say he was laughable. So let's laugh at it like we always do. Now, in our discussion, which was recorded during lockdown, you'll hear references to the date and this was before my surgery to repair my voice after thyroid cancer, so that's why I sound really different. So let's resume our 2020 discussion with our special guest, author, podcaster, academic, and Pulitzer Prize winner, Dr. Marsha Chatlin. Hello. It is such an honor and pleasure to be the Ken Jennings of this podcast. Um, thank you so much for the invitation. Well, Marsha, you're one of our go-to criminal intent experts. Are you ready for some original recipe action? You know, I am so unfamiliar with really original recipes that this was a wonderful challenge. And uh, this one's so bananas that <laughs> it's like I didn't even know where I was when I watched it. So thank you, Kevin and Rebecca. For that. Oh, yeah. Oh, don't thank me. It's a Kevin's show. I'm just going to remind the viewers and listeners again and again, this is Kevin's podcast. <laughs> well, I got to ask you because you've been on a couple of times and you've been a solid Gorin and Eames each time for your favorite detective team. But I got to ask of all the franchises, who is your second favorite detective team? <laughs> second favorite law and order detective team. I think I'll go with Benson and Stabler. Only because mm. I, I like Benson's energy 
And Mm -hmm. I think that she makes up for Stabler's emotional uh, dysregulation. (laughs) (laughs) That's a polite way of saying it. So politically correct right there. (laughs) I liked it. (laughs) And who is your second favorite prosecutorial team? Second favorite law and order district attorney prosecutorial team. You know what? In light of recent events, I'm going to say no one. You know, prosecutors really (laughs) need uh, to really reflect on what they're doing, because as I watch more and more law and order, um, there is so much prosecutorial misconduct on this show Mm. that no one gets to be a favorite until they really reflect on how they're treating the law. Mm. All right. Yeah, but you do like Carver. I do like Carver. (laughs) You know what I you know what also I've realized about this show? And I think I've said this before, the inconsistency in the acting it would be really fantastic if someone just clipped all the guest stars out of Law and Order mm. um, to uh-huh. kind of see the incredible range of the cast, um, except for the woman who was fired for being a lesbian. She was never good. <laughs> but everyone else is so strong. So, yes, I do like her. <laughs> now let's look at the first half of this episode, Law and Order Season 8, Episode 7, Blood. Well, if those New York City dog walkers had started just five minutes sooner, mm. they wouldn't have found that body. It would have landed on them. Mm. Looks like Karen Burdett threw herself out the window while her husband, Josh, was off getting her antidepressants. Karen had given birth about three weeks earlier and given the child up for adoption. And it's looking more and more like maybe she was pushed. He's 57 years old, Lenny. How would you like to do diaper duty again? Yeah, if that happened to me, I'd jump off the roof. Look. She would have fought back. There'd be marks on her. She was too doped up to fight. You talked to Burdett's pharmacy? They remember he was there, but they don't know when or for how long. Still, it's a 10-minute trip. He says it took him an hour. One vote she was pushed, one vote she jumped. Is it possible Karen wanted to revoke the adoption? The wealthy Burdett's delivered in a discreet public hospital <laughs> before a lawyer whisks the infant away. Briscoe and Curtis visit the adopted parents to see that, although the Burdett's are white, the baby girl is black. <gasps> The detectives grill Josh on how he's not the father in a way that you might not actually do in 2020. (laughs) They talk to a black acquaintance of Karen about whether he had an affair with her. To establish paternity, they test the baby's blood and learn that she had an anemia disorder. But hold the phone. Josh Burdett is also taking folic acid for this same anemia. If he's the father, it means Burdett is actually black a secret that the pharmaceutical executive might be willing to kill to keep. Van Buren slides into the interrogation (laughs) and opens up with, hello, my brother, (laughs) and they place him under arrest for killing his wife. All right, where to start? How about here? The Burdettes go to a public hospital, implying they don't want anyone to know about the baby. Hmm. But she was pregnant for nine months, so who the fuck are they fooling? <laughs> well, was it, like- it isn't like she didn't go, like, quote, live with her aunt upstate for the summer. I mean, you know? did they do it like a TV show in the 80s where she entered a room with a giant box in front of her over and over again <laughs> for, like, a nine-month period? Where people are like, what is in that box? What's going on? <laughs> Standing behind the furniture. Yeah. Or, like, Benson, like, sitting behind the computer and computer crimes. All day long. All day long. <laughs> what is this episode? That's a really good question, Kevin. That's really, really good. And no one like, was wondering in any of these adoption agencies, like, why is this super wealthy white couple who lives in a penthouse giving their baby up for adoption? Like, that's a question they never faced, I guess. Well, I imagine it's happened. Well, their doorman never even asked? Like, where'd that baby go? Door- he might have slipped back in while I was on my break. I, I, I better check him. You notice what time he went out this morning? No, I must have missed it. I, I, I might have been on a break then, too. Three breaks in one morning? You must have one hell of a union. What I have is a prostate condition. <laughs> the doorman apparently had a bad prostate. It was always away. The peeing of the doorman let him have some space. Briscoe is in everyone's business in this episode. He is in your urinary tract. He is in, like, your medicine chest. He is so... Um, he has like zero boundaries, which I guess is the whole point of this show. But it's <laughs> yeah. like he he just keeps on making these like little digs 
that I'm like, is he always this annoying on this show? Is this why I only watch Criminal Intent? Because I like the <laughs> silence of Mr. D'Onofrio yeah. more than yeah. this, this whatever this was. Well, we really do get to see the two sides of Briscoe. First, uh, he's a 60-year-old man, not afraid to flirt with a nurse. Oh, man. So uh, you'd have his name and number in the Burdett's file? Uh, yes. That's where we keep confidential information. Oh, come on. You show me his number and I'll show you mine. And I guarantee you, you'll have more fun with me than I'm going to have with him. I don't think so, Romeo. And then he believes that his suspect murdered his wife in a fit of both jealousy and racism. So he chooses some unfortunate interrogation tactics. You think? You think. <laughs> yeah, all right. Maybe if it was one of your country club pals. But she was sweating up the sheets with some big, good-looking black stud. That can really piss some people off. you that kind of people, Mr. Burdett? No. She gets the baby back, everybody's gonna know. Stop it. She was playing Scarlett O'Hara with Mandingo. Enough. That's enough. I did not kill Karen. I mean, uh. I have mixed feelings about this. Marsha, I'd love to know your thoughts. So, on the one hand, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there's one way to look at it. I just named my puppy Briscoe, so I want to be, maybe give him some, like, just, just give him, like, a, an opportunity. On the one hand, if you're trying to go to racists, Maybe like pretending that you're super comfortable using racist language might be a tactic. You know, maybe. Well, I don't know. I have real mixed feelings about this whole scene. Uh, <laughs> not really. As members of the New York Police Department, I guess it would not be a stretch of the imagination that racism <laughs> is something they're a little bit more comfy with than other kind of social ideologies, perhaps. But I think yeah. I think what happens is. Yes. One could actually believe that in an interrogation, you want the person to believe that, you know, you are racist, too. So you kind of do that. And I'm sure this is totally realistic, but it's done so poorly on television. As Mm. I was um, watching this, I was like writing little notes of the things that um, came up in the dialogue that reminded me of certain movies and books that I've actually read and like assigned to my students. I teach a class called Sex, Love and Race in American Life and Culture. And this episode is being added to the syllabus. um, (laughs) The problem with all of this, as I was watching, I was like, the writers on the show, they don't read books, so they're not making mm. references to anything. It's all of these kind of fantasies about how people navigate and talk about race. And I think that's what mm. makes it painful. Um, yeah. The writing is really bad. And I think that the like good actors really try hard with it, except for the guest stars. We'll get on them in a second. But, you know, <laughs> it's it is very painful but this idea that this guy would be so upset that his wife had an affair with a black man that isn't a huge stretch of the imagination it's the way they talk about it that makes you also want to throw yourself off a balcony you know you know what though was really interesting and this is like just shown like we weren't we have not uh moved backwards because we were pretty backward back then too it has shown though how much more comfortable people are being racist out loud in 2020 than they were in well, the late 90s? I mean, come on. Because like all all of these all yeah. of these conversations are like, I would have thought she would have known better, blah, blah, blah. And it's like people don't even say that anymore. Yeah. I mean, we do get an end bomb. And even though it's Van Buren who says it, it's shocking for 96. But I feel like there's no way you could it's- do that today without it being a real like it would, they would just well, you're gonna have a disclaimer the, at the beginning of the show. Yeah, yeah sure. something like that. I don't. <laughs> well, it's interesting to think about like the kind of language and the kind of stereotypes that this show is using to advance the the drama of it. Um, I, you know, I was thinking about that like in the '90s. So this episode aired in what '96. 97, yeah. 97. Shortly after the Abner Luima yeah. case. We know that because they referenced so it they, in the episode. So the kind of references to Abner Luima, there's a there's a very quick passing note of O.J. Simpson and his children. I think they might even make um, a reference to the L.A. uprising. And so I think at this point, this may have been a very special law and order, which they're all so special in their own way. But this is a very special one in which they're going to try to get real about race. I mean... I think the plot twist, which I'm sure we'll get to in a bit, the plot twist, I think, is as problematic as their attempt to try to suggest that um, people are so stressed out about the possibility of race that they go to these extremes in order to keep a racial secret. Mm. 
So they suspect that this black philanthropist who's friends with Karen <laughs> oh, may be Jesus. the father. Her one black friend. Right. So his alibi. Her one black friend. <laughs> his alibi is that he was jogging at the reservoir. Yes. Can you bust his alibi? He was running by himself. We showed his picture around the reservoir. Nobody remembers him. Rebecca. Why is this surprising? Because uh, we've already covered this on another episode. A million people yes. jog at the reservoir every morning. Yeah. So the idea. But what? They all jog in the same direction. <laughs> so you're like, did you see the back of this guy's head? That's right. No. Surprising. <laughs> so the, but the idea even that they would like be showing the photo around to the million people who are there in the morning and no one recognized him. A, no one in New York looks at each other. Like that's a thing. Like, nobody looks jog at each other anyway. Down. And yes, as you pointed out, Everyone, for the most part, if they're doing the right thing, jogs in the same direction. Marsha, I think that would be a really good scene because, as you know, the law and order trope, you can't stop doing the thing you're doing when, the, when they talk to you. <laughs> so I think these joggers, I think you could see Curtis like jogging. You know, Have you seen this guy? Have you seen this guy? No, okay. I want to see Briscoe in like 1980s short, short running shorts and Nikes <laughs> trying to show this guy's pictures to a group of New Yorkers. It's funny. I'm so uh, steeped in this show as well as the Law and Order universe that when he said I was running that they showed his picture around, I was like, oh, Rebecca's going to call bullshit on this real fast. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we have a Hey, It's That Guy. Hey, it's that guy. Who is the actor playing Joshua Burdett? Anyone know? I don't know. First, I killed Karen because she had a child by another man. Then I killed her because she had my child. Okay, that's Stephen Medello. He got his start as one of the players in the classic hockey comedy Slapshot. Really? Somewhat familiar with... I know people who like it. Yes. <laughs> he wasn't one of the McKenzie brothers, but he was the one who skates past the opposing uh, bench and hits everybody in the head with the blade of his stick, Three Stooges style. Haven't seen it, but I believe you, that's a scene. That's a scene. Uh, four Law & Order appearances, three of them as a white man. Uh, <laughs> so... We do have some repeat offenders. Repeat offender. Uh, Ex-wife Francis is played by former Hey, It's That Girl, Deborah Rush. You saw my son. He's not black. And neither is Josh. We saw her in SVU Russian love poem. She is in Orange is the New Black. Hmm. Uh, she's somebody's mother. I can't remember if she's... Uh, never mind. Piper's mother. Piper's mother. She was in American Pie. You know, comedies with Eugene Levy. Mm-hmm. And we also have Josh Pace as the medical examiner. It's an abraded contusion, back of her right wrist. From the fall? From having her arm twisted hard. He's got 28 Law & Order appearances, 16 in Original Recipe as this Emmy. And he was also the pedophile police PR man yes. on SVU. That's right. Okay. With the computer in his closet. But we do get to see somebody before they were famous. Before they were famous. Who is playing the adoptive mother, Ellen O'Brien? It is the first lady on Scandal, whose name I do not know. Bellamy Young. We waited five years to get a child. I wrote them a letter to thank them and to let them know that Maggie was in a good home. Bellamy Young, yes. She plays Melly on Scandal, which I only know because my stepdaughter's been here for the last couple weeks and she <laughs> loves that trashy TV. <laughs> she, she had to get it all in before Netflix took down Scandal. Yeah. I just want to say one quick thing about Scandal and see if Marsha agrees with it. Yeah. Marsha Chatlin, when people have sex on Scandal, do they not always look like it is the first time they have ever had sex? They're so surprised it feels that good. Every time they kiss or have sex, it's like, <gasps> like it's the best thing they have ever felt. It is like the first time every time. It is so weird. I do not know what is going on in the lives of the people on Scandal, but yes. But I'm glad you brought up Scandal because there's something in this episode that is very Scandal-like, yeah. which is bad face acting, which Kerry Washington <laughs> has distinguished herself for. Um, the guy who plays the Emmy, um, the ex-wife of Mr. Burdett, their face acting is so intense that you think that they had taken all the medication in Mrs. Burdett's um, medicine chest before they started the scene. The Emmy in that scene is so manic. And I'm like, hey guys, mm. anyone test this guy? Like, what is going on? But face acting as, um, you know, kind of the bread and butter of soap operas, of of both daytime and nighttime, um, I think it's a crisis in this country. And after we deal with coronavirus, yeah. I think face acting needs to be the next priority. Agreed. 100% agreed. So Bellamy Young, she uh, won a Critics' Choice Award, 
has three Law and Order appearances. What including- did you want it for this? No, not for this. <laughs> for scandal. Okay. Uh, she's also been on Law and Order LA, so the, that makes her a unicorn, I guess. Uh, she says that when you guest star, you're usually at the center of the dramatic arc, so that's fun. Mm. Well, good point on Law and Order. If you're the guest star, you're probably moving boxes or jogging <laughs> while trying to talk to a cop. <laughs> okay, they're going to put all the pieces together by learning that the baby had this rare kind of anemia mm-hmm. and josh was also anemic i'm gonna say kind of a thin supposition though totally he's thin. taking folic acid he must be black <laughs> well is this one anemia that is mostly prevalent among black people they don't actually say that but that was the assumption i made is that an incorrect assumption they, were they suggesting he had sickle cell anemia that's a whole no, different no, it was no, like a different kind of blastosis anemia. It, it wasn't sickle cell which would have no that would have been more like yeah. ham-fisted no but that's i i just sort of assumed that that was like maybe a line of dialogue that got cut i don't know but yeah they, they did pretty pretty quickly jump to that did they not yeah i thought so yeah. <laughs> so to, you know to verify that they go to talk to the ex-wife francis houston mm. who is not that pleased bitch. by this line that of questioning francis uh she doesn't think he's black because she says josh is not black i was married to him for 19 years i'd know i'd know <laughs> uh, i was like just well, she t- let this end yeah was she, was she talking about his dick? I, I think that was supposed to be a double entendre. And again, the uh-huh. fa- the face acting just the face acting um, really did reveal the deep desperation of whoever got that kept in the script. Yes, I think that was a reference. There was also to a tell. Yeah, yeah, but there was a tell too, right? Because she, you know, they were talking about the anemia, and yeah. she was like, "Thank God our son David didn't get the condition." It's like you fucking knew he was black. <laughs> you knew it. Dun dun dun. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. Why is this That's not the us. condition you're talking about. All right. Well, then we have Anita Van Buren come into the interrogation room <sighs> to translate. Jesus Christ. Okay. Van Buren is the expository supporting character, but every once in a while, they give her a scene, and she does not waste it. <laughs> Hello, my brother. Damn. Look at you. You did it. You passed. You know, I thought up close I'd be able to tell, but I swear I can't. So what's it like when it's just you and them? You laugh along when they tell the jokes? Oh, you know what I'm talking about, right? I felt like I was in just like a horrible table reading for (laughs) someone who had taken four of my classes and then dropped out and was like, I'm going to write something really powerful. I went to four of these classes about race in America, and I think I'm ready for the big stage. And they invite me to come, and I want to die. <laughs> so I have a question. Yeah. <laughs> You're not going to be able to answer it, Kevin. Okay. Just settle down. My question is this. Van Buren, and I granted, I'm also mm. going to give her the benefit of the doubt. Mm. She's trying to goad him by saying provocative things. Mm. I'm just giving everybody the fucking benefit of the doubt right. in this episode, even though I probably shouldn't. She immediately starts with the damn, you passed, like congratulations speech. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is that what happens if you meet somebody who passed? <laughs> Do you like congratulate them? Because that's like the aspiration that everybody wants to attain. Do I know you, you're looking at I'm me, but looking I, at you. I think the African-American studies professor <laughs> might have a more informed opinion. Is that how that conversation would start? What do you think, Marsha? Here's the thing. As someone who has never had a conversation with someone who I think is passing, um, I'm basing this on second and third hand knowledge. You know, this is this is actually if this episode wasn't so terrible, this could actually teach people some stuff. So um, one this is such a like enduring trope of popular culture of a person who passes and they do extreme violence to themselves, to a child, or to someone that they're close to, to keep their secret. Mm. That this had, like, th- this was Law and Order on a real 19th century vibe. But all of mm-hmm. this is to say that this idea of kind of um, of racial betrayal of, you know, you, you passed because you had to... The idea that she would confront him in this way outside of the context of a police interrogation is unlikely. But I think what they were trying to do, this is me being gracious for like 45 seconds. Um, I think mm-hmm. what they were trying to do was suggest that 
she understood that the reasons why people hide their their race in order to advance is about a kind of level of trickery and manipulation, but it's also a practical move. And so I think that was supposed to get at the complexity and nuance of it. I don't know how successful it was, but it was this <laughs> idea that like, I get what you're trying to do and I, and I respect and I understand it because it's so difficult. I, none of this makes sense. Well, so let me just drop a little uh, text, contextual background. Oh, great. Because this is... <laughs> Teach <no>. us. <laughs> We're into season eight, and everybody remembers season eight as the episode, as the season where we get a little more into the characters' personal lives. Okay. And then in season nine, they never fucking do that again. <laughs> there was a reference to taking a phone call yeah. about having taken the captains. Right. Camp. Could you hold on? See if forensics can break the tie, and could you close the door, please? Boyfriend? Mrs. Van Buren? No, I heard she took the captain's exam. Usually means a transfer. Just when I was getting used to her sunny disposition. Her dramatic personal arc through the season is that she is passed over for this promotion, and it goes to a, a white woman with less experience, mm. and she sues the department right. and ultimately loses her lawsuit. So that's her thing. So at this moment... She is starting to feel. She's just gotten that news. She just got that. We don't know that. We don't know but that, it, but but the, but, but she, she just, the got, that just got that news, and yeah. it is probably. I think we can that the character is now a little sensitive, maybe more than normal, about how race is playing out around her. So in her mind, giving her the benefit of the doubt, the audience, by the way, has no fucking way to know this. <laughs> Absolutely this not. Is not fair. No. <laughs> but in her mind, she has just hung up the phone after being told she was passed over for a promotion. Yeah. By yeah. a white woman with no experience. And right. she walks into that interrogation room maybe sort of thinking like, if I were white, I would have gotten the promotion. So that's what's informing her, hello, brother, congratulations, right. you passed speech. I didn't write the script. <laughs> I'm just telling you. Okay. All right. From a, from a television historical perspective. I, I will that's say something. The writing aside. Yeah. She acts the hell out of that. She's team. so good. And she's a better interrogator by 50 than any cop who works in that squad oh, room. I'm so happy that both of you said that because although it's bananas, I really liked it. I started feeling bad <laughs> for liking this scene. But like I say, when Esipath and Murgerson does a get a act. chance to step up, <laughs> yeah. and we had a couple of great episodes, the one myth of fingerprints where yeah. she found out that she might have wrongfully convicted somebody. I was on that episode. And, oh, that's right. That's right. Closing that case got me noticed, Lenny. And I used to hear the whispers and the chatter behind my back. She got it because she's black. She got it because she's a woman. And I never listened to that crap because I knew I had earned it. And then we had uh, competence, the one where... She shoots the guy? She shoots the, the, the kids yeah. while at the ATM. I'm a black woman lieutenant in the New York City Police Department. Do you have any idea what that means? I'm not any cop doctor. If I was, I'd still be writing parking tickets. And now you're afraid of losing all you've accomplished. No. I'm angry that everything I've accomplished is being ignored because of a mistake. She really gets yeah. to, you know, she's really an outstanding Later when actress. she gets cancer. She's incredible. You know, yeah. she's an incredible actress. As you say this, perhaps the racism of Hollywood kept her from having a spinoff. I would prefer to have a show about her than fucking Stabler. <laughs> Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer, like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. My son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials Program, the world opened up. He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities. Well, now let's look at the second half of this episode. McCoy and Ross 
are ready to prosecute, and Schiff cannot fucking take it. <laughs> he is so happy. Uh, <laughs> you confirm that he's the father of this child? We're just waiting for a blood sample from the baby. What else? Weak alibi, forensics to establish the manner of death. His motive being that he didn't want anyone to know he was black. Why? Shame, loss of friends, his work. I can just imagine what he was afraid of. Don't imagine it. Prove it. Ross learns in the 1960s Joshua Burdett lied on his employment application saying he was white. It never was a problem until he was assigned a black protege who could tell that he was passing. <laughs> she also finds out that Burdett stood to lose millions in benefits if discovered and he had hired a discrimination lawyer. Meantime, Mrs. O'Brien has taken the baby into hiding, hoping to run out the clock on when the adoption can be revoked. It was Burdett's ex-wife, Frances, who convinced them that Josh could still take the baby back. Mr. O'Brien says Frances did so because she didn't want a black child in the family, though she didn't say it exactly like that. <laughs> <laughs> After finding her fingerprints on the balcony and telling Josh they needed to protect their son, McCoy has Frances arrested for murder. At trial, both Josh and Francis refused to discuss the contents of their sealed divorce decree. Francis says Karen's fall was an accident, but on cross, McCoy points to her own desire to keep her son's racial identity a secret from their bougie friends and prep school classmates. While the jury deliberates, Ross gets the divorce file the parents didn't want to open. They show that, at first, Francis refused custody of their half-black son, and Joshua needed to triple the child support so she wouldn't walk out on him keep things under wraps she agrees to take a plea of man one and then she fires her black attorney <laughs> uh, okay. all right so what we know it's really francis whose racial views are the motivator in this crime when we find out that she talked to mr o'brien mm. and described the baby like don imus would mm. uh she said once he clears himself he's going to fight us for the baby she told us to take maggie out of state she even offered us money did she say why she was doing this? I can't understand how an educated woman like her could say it, but she said she didn't want some nappy-haired little monkey ruining her family. He says, I was, you know, surprised because she's an educated person. Uh, why would that make you think she wouldn't say that? Because she was educated. This is, this is when this episode goes off the rails, which is saying a lot. This is when it goes off the rails? Um, there's too many, um, again... There's like a baby M reference. There's a reference yep. to the pharmaceutical industry and its protocols with giving doctors vacations. Then they mention mm -hmm. Abner Louima. I think the there's a reference perhaps to a very famous novel about passing. But then again, the writers don't read books. So it, <laughs> it has so much stuff in it. But the thing that. I think it was really, um, again, historically inaccurate, what a surprise, was this idea that he had a black protege at work and that this guy um, figured out he was passing. And then when Mr. Burdett talks about his own passing, this is not how this worked at all, <laughs> ever in the mm. South. If a person in a family was passing as white, they had to completely leave their family behind. He was like, yeah, I used to, used to use the white uh, water fountains instead of the colored ones. You, you don't do that. Like, you can't stay mm. in the same town, pass for white some part of the days, and then go back to your house. Like, that's not right. how that infrastructure worked at all. And so they keep on saying things in this episode, like, are you going to raise this baby as an African-American? It's like... It, like they were going to raise it like an Episcopalian. I just don't know what they are talking about. Um, and so it, it's, I don't know. I think that towards the end, in order to try to resolve all the various threads and to implicate Francis in the crime, they had to create this setup about um, the nature of passing, which does not say anything about the nature of passing. Can we just talk about the boss? Oh, the boss. <laughs> His friend of Quote, I never years. saw any hint he was black. And I, and like, what do you mean by that? <laughs> what are they talking about? You're wrong about Josh. I've known the man for 20 years and I never saw any hint he was anything but what he said he was. What kind of hints were you looking for? Well, for example, there was a young black man a couple of years ago, Sean Tate. A real comer Josh put under his wing. Then one day, he's gone. Josh had enough of the attitude. Everything was black this, black that. Mr. Burdett fired him? And get us sued? Tell me, what did you Tell mean? Me what would have been a hint that he was black? Tell me more. <laughs> like, that would have been my follow-up question immediately. 
Well, at what point there? Oh, I'm looking at my notes and someone said something about Scarlett O'Hara and Mandingo. Yes. And yeah. I say, am I really yes. watching this? Do Rebecca and Kevin secretly yes. hate me? Did I do something? That was Briscoe. I said, I said, did I do something to their kid last time I saw him? <laughs> It's really bad. It's really bad. Wow. Wow. Well, the, the other the other wow of this, I mean, not to be so persnickety, but since we've started, um, the idea that Frances is this high society lady who sends her kids to this prestigious all-white school, and he's a pharmaceutical sales rep. Like, there's something about that. She's got this kind of Long Island... Um, kind of lockjaw country club thing going. And I don't see mm-hmm. them ever getting together in the first place because right. he's just regular. He's just regular rich, right? not like yeah. old money yeah. rich. And then I don't understand why he's so freaked out about getting fired for being black. It, shouldn't he just sell his apartment and he'd have millions of dollars? The kind of That's right. like motivation part of this is really undercooked. What a surprise. Okay, we see here that Jamie sets up Jack on a date with a friend. Again, more <laughs> of the thinking? season eight stuff. What are you thinking, Jamie? Uh, well, <laughs> he's reluctant to share his side of what happened at dinner, but Jamie already knows. In case you're wondering, she thought you were charming. Passionate. Passionate? About your work. <laughs> she said you mentioned Claire Kincaid. Because Madeline's brother spent three months in the hospital thanks to a drunk driver. I was not obsessing. Don't worry. For some reason, she'd like to see you again. Why would a colleague of Jack McCoy's set up her friend with Jack McCoy? <laughs> he is. He uh, needs somebody. He needs to get it in. It's been like a year and a half. <laughs> How He's does it benefit it her or her friend? She's nice. She's being nice. And, <laughs> and who Marcia, is she being nice to? <laughs> and Marsha, we learned that uh, she appreciates Jack's passion. Does she? For the law. Good for her. <laughs> Good for her, because I'm sure that's all he can talk about on a damn date. This was such a weird. Are they are they like foreshadowing or is this supposed to exposit something else we're supposed to know for this season? Because it's like, who cares? Yeah. Well, just just that, you know, he was having a secret affair with one of our most beloved characters. Of course. Who is gone. Honest to God, we're still really tickled by that storyline to this day. Yes. You love that, Rebecca. I know you do. Maybe this was the writer's way of dispelling any notion that he and Ross were going to have a thing. Oh, interesting. Because remember, her whole divorce comes into yeah. play this season, too, right. right? Like where she's getting custody yeah. of the kid and all that stuff. And, we, and when McCoy does join, he sort of has this rumor as being a dog. Yes. And I got to say, like after Kincaid, like that is not a plot point. Or a character trait they they gave him. You don't see him dating anymore. Yeah, maybe they're just trying to dispel the notion that he just has sex with everybody he works with. Maybe that's what they're trying to do. Also, there was some criticism, I remember, about Carrie Lowell's being hired to replace Jill Hennessy. What is that? That there was like a type. Ah. Like another short-haired brunette beauty uh-huh. paired with, you know, that he has a type. With resting sad face? <laughs> <laughs> It's that damn face acting again. I tell you. Yeah, 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 yeah. So Francis Houston's attorney is having to face off with McCoy. Frankly, Mr. Joyner, I'm surprised that you'd represent a bigot. I don't see a bigot here. I see a woman deceived and pushed to the brink by a self-hating coward. Everyone at my firm agrees, Mr. McCoy. No jury will ever convict her. Really? (laughs) Based on that defense? My... My note was, yikes, how do you do jury selection in New York City and have no black people on it? Oh, I guess that's that's why we have the criminal justice system that we do. <laughs> that's right. We were, I, weren't you just waiting? I was so yeah. waiting for the look at the jury. I'm like, are there going to be any black people? And there were. Of course. There were. I think for our heroes, though, it's more problematic if you have any white people. Oh, my God. I was so uh, confused by the reasoning about why this conviction wouldn't happen. I'm like, she literally killed somebody by pushing her off a balcony. <laughs> why isn't this conviction going to happen? <laughs> <laughs> well, look, in court, I mean, both parties have to kind of explain themselves. Josh explains himself by using the water cooler defense. Mm. I was often mistaken for white. I could sit at the front of the bus. I could drink at the water fountain reserved for whites. You can't imagine what an advantage that was when you're bone dry, thirsty on a hot summer's day and it's another 20 blocks to a colored water fountain. Whose chilled water addiction is setting the stage for their life? My God. 
I mean, I mean, after they pass the civil rights bill, <laughs> are people like, okay, I'm going to vote and I'm going to use public transportation, but God damn it, I'm thirsty. It's like the water cooler. Well, also, this was an interesting one because they were talking about who can be an expert on how yeah. fucked up society is about black people. These witnesses are relevant, Your Honor. Professor Murphy's study quantifies the economic discrepancies between the races. Professor Harrison's work on law enforcement practices has been cited in every... None of which has anything to do with her claim. It goes to her state of mind. Her fear her son would suffer the fate of many African Americans. Your Honor, if Miss Joyner wants to establish her client's state of mind, she can call her to the stand. Even if I do, these witnesses are evidence that her beliefs and concerns about racism in this country are reasonable. It would have been you, Marsha. You would have been on that list. You know gosh, that, right? You know, I... I th- yeah, but you were 12 years old at the time, so... I, <laughs> I think about... Well, I was doing hot takes even when I was 12 in the school newspaper, but, <laughs> you know, this is actually, again, for people who want to read books, Um, this reminded me of this very famous case in 1921 called the Kirby case where this guy wants to divorce his wife for lying about being black. And the experts mm-hmm. that are brought before the courts include a manicurist because during this time, people thought that black and white people had different nail shapes. Her hairdresser, uh-huh. some guy who had been to Africa a few times and kind of met a lot of black people. I mean, it was bananas. But this idea of who's an expert on race is actually really, really important because there used to be a thought that it should be anthropologists and people study the body. But in this case, mm-hmm. they were like, well, maybe it should be sociologists and people who study um, racial disparities. And then the judge was like, no, mm. this. Yeah, exactly. No. Yeah. It should be the writers of Law and Order who only read newspaper <laughs> oh headlines God. and not books. So McCoy gets Francis on the stand. Yes. And so the motivation has to do with race. So he's got to find a way to prove that she's racist. Yes. She, he can throw her words back at her. It's hard to find a demonstrative example, except He walks her right into the school. Aren't there other African-American students in his class? The only black student they have is from Bermuda. Who decided to send your son to this school? It was your decision, wasn't it, Miss Houston? Objection. Overruled. My father went to the Chase Academy. They have excellent academics. And no African-American students. Isn't that the real reason? No. You wanted your son to go to a white school to have white friends. Isn't that right? No. Because you don't like African-Americans. That's not true. You didn't want your white friends to know you'd been married to one, did you? No. When she says that the only black kid her son goes to school with is from Bermuda, (laughs) that to me was, I mean, that was one good piece of dialogue. That was the one good piece of dialogue in this whole series. I was like, that is just... That is just really? what a racist person would allow well, like, as their exposure for their kid to another black person as if they're from Bermuda. I thought, her, like reasoning, spot on. I thought her reasoning that for, for every, every Tiger, Tiger Woods, Woods, there's a thousand fuzzy zellers. Oh, my God. Was was that, also, oh, again, yeah. another headline. It's like they want right. to strangle you with the headlines. I <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know she doesn't want the world to know that her son is black. But did you see that kid's haircut? <laughs> I didn't understand not, the casting of that kid. He's not black. He's a Nazi. He was like Jeremy from the Pearl Jam video. <laughs> <laughs> he looked very troubled in other ways. He has like, it's the bowl cut on top and shaved on the side. It was bad. Yeah, I yeah. was totally waiting for that to be then like a school shooting episode. I meant that seriously. Like, is this kid going to yeah. shoot up the courtroom or the steps of the courthouse? Of course, because there's no security yes. there. I was wondering if the kid's brooding was going to lead to anything. But no, just brooding. Nope. Yeah. Just sitting there looking like, you know, his mom hates him. <laughs> Because yeah. she, she does. She hates him now. Wait wait until she finds out he's also Jewish. Oh, no. Or Jeremy or from Jeremy. the Pearl Jam video. Right. <laughs> BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. All right, let's take a look at the real life story that inspired this episode. It's time for Ripped from the Headlines. 
think you know who did you it. You think you know who did it. But you don't know who did it. You don't know who did it. Rip from the headlines. This episode takes cues from the life of author Anatole Broyard. Born in New Orleans during the Great Depression, his family moved to Brooklyn seeking better opportunities. Broyard's parents were both light-skinned blacks and would often pass as white in order to get jobs. When World War II broke out, Broyard enlisted in the army. At the time, the armed forces were segregated and black recruits didn't qualify for officer training. But he was accepted as white and rose to the rank of captain. After the war, he became a writer in Greenwich Village at a time when artists were reinventing themselves. He decided, in order to be accepted in literary circles, he must pass for white. Broyard became a successful critic and essayist with the New York Times. In 1961, he married and fathered two children, who he raised as white. It wasn't until the last stages of his battle with terminal cancer that he shared his family's secret in 1990. Years later, when the truth came out, critics took Broyard to task for denying his racial identity, while others conceded his literary opportunities as a black writer in that time were truly limited. If he wanted to say that he was white, mm. is it his decision or is it the rest of us to say, no, you shouldn't have done that? I don't think that question is a simple one to answer, well, Kevin. That's why- <laughs> Marsha, what do you think? Well, I mean, here, here's the thing. It's all about context. So, you know, he passed in order to create opportunities that were unavailable to him because of racism. Um, I get right. that. But I think the thing about passing when people talk about it in these really dramatic stories, his daughter Bliss Broyard, I think, wrote a book about her dad, is that people often forget that people lose something in the process. That often stories of passing are about ways that people are able to gain um, fame or money or even just social comfort. But there's also something like really sad and tragic about denying your family and having to basically um, lose a part of yourself in the process. So I think that it is unfortunate we live in a society that forces people to have to go to such measures in order to protect their life and liberty. And so uh, it's just sad. It is sad. But there's also like, I think that the argument people make um, and, you know, it's an argument people make in, in other situations, too, not just in terms of black people passing, is that you are in some way complicit with the with the with the power structure if you decide to pass to be on the more powerful side of the power structure like that's the argument that people make right marcia if you can't beat him join him that kind of thing yeah Yeah. because at some point you were in the room and someone said something and you didn't speak up because because your own status was more important than what's right i mean that's the argument right Right. and i think that you know during the time that you know, in, in 1945, passing in order to save your own life and not get, you know, hurt or um, to be able to provide for your family. I think that feels a little different than being just the yep. asshole at the office who doesn't speak up when your boss is being the worst. But I think that the kind of thread in both of it is that anytime we kind of suppress what we know is right um, and we don't do the right thing because of our own self-interest, it kind of bites us in the ass anyway. So I think that mm. this question about... Um, deceit and authenticity always lingers in our culture. And I think that's why um, uh, episodes like this and movies and books that talk about people with a secret past or with a story um, that they're not sharing is so intriguing because a lot of American popular culture is actually predicated on this idea of people hiding their racial identity. Marsha, do you believe that in academia in particular that uh, African-Americans are at a disadvantage. Oh, yeah. There's like four people who get to be successful. I'm one of them. And then everyone else has to just like, no, like just scratch at an opportunity. I mean, I think I think the reality is, is that like every sector, um, whether it's, you know, media, whether it's Hollywood, that the racism of the larger society is supported by the racism within these um, different industries. I think the thing that I'm most gratified by is that Um, As more time passes, um, there are spaces for people to learn and to rethink the way that society has taught them things should be. So, Marsha, are you trying to say that if Nicole Wallace were black, she wouldn't be able to walk into a very prestigious university and pretend (laughs) to be an Oxford educated, Uh (laughs) tenured English professor? That's the Nicole Wallace from Criminal Intent, not from MSNBC. Yeah, well, um, I have a critique of both of them, but yes. So if... (laughs) (laughs) 
that episode of Criminal Intent and that storyline of Nicole Wallace as a white woman with an accent who's really pretty, just showing up and doing shit, um, I think is actually pretty accurate. Um, But I am thankful that I have never had to share um, a department meeting with Nicole Wallace, but the the future still has so many things to unfold. Uh, so uh, Broyard was posthumously outed by Henry Louis Gates, hmm. and uh, he was last seen uh, playing Treasury Secretary Henry Louis Gates in Watchmen. Hmm. Remember him? So, hello, nerds. Uh, <laughs> but he's a, re- a revered voice on race relations and the host of Finding Your Roots. Do you remember how he got invited to the White House? Yeah, I do. He was confronted by a Cambridge police officer yep. after a neighbor called 911 yep. because he was locked out of his own house. Yes. Get in. And at the beer summit. Yeah, the beer summit. President <sighs> Obama invited him to the White House, both of them. Obama had a Bud Light. Uh-huh. The cop had a Blue Moon. Gates had a Sam Adams Light. Joe Biden brought whatever was in the club car <laughs> from the 415 to Dover. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it was great that they solved racism. In yes, America. congratulations. Uh, yeah. Thanks, Obama. <laughs> <laughs> so Gates actually became friends with this officer because they, you know, had time to talk to each other. They had a personal connection. They became friends, and he asked the cop for a DNA sample, and he found out that they were related as distant Irish cousins. And I'm like, you both live in Boston. Of course, you're fucking related to each other. Everybody's related to each other in Boston, one way or the other. And everyone's a distant Irish cousin. Yeah, yeah. Sully. So, yeah. Well, that's going to do it for us. want to thank our very special guest, Marsha Chatlin. Marsha, where can our listeners follow you online? You can follow me on Twitter at Dr. M. Chatlin, and as well as Instagram. And you can also uh, check out my new book, Franchise, The Golden Arches in Black America. Yeah, that was I, that's a great concept for a story. Oh my God, it's incredible. It's incredible. Yeah. Rebecca, how can our listeners follow you? You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram. And if you follow me on Twitter, you'll see a lot of stuff about moths (laughs) at Reb (laughs) Lavoie. And you can track me on Twitter at Kevin P. Flynn. You can also tweet to us at Law and Order Pod or follow us on Instagram at These Are Their Stories Podcast. Our newsreader was Cy Freighter. Our theme music was composed and performed by Uncanny Valleys. Line editing by Henry Lavoie. Content assistance from Travis Roy. Willie Flynn handles promotions. To get ad-free episodes of These Are Their Stories a week early, sign up for Stitcher Premium. Get your first month free at stitcherpremium.com slash crime. All clips in this podcast were used in compliance with the U.S. Copyrights Act, fair use exemption for criticism and commentary. Special thanks to the elite squad of the Law & Order Wiki community for preserving the evidence. Go to lawandorderpodcast.com to sign up for our newsletter and a chance to be our next Law & Order Marathon winner. These Are Their Stories was recorded in the Yoko Loft above the Bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi studio and is a production of Partners in Crime Media. Partners in Crime Media. My son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials Program, the world opened up. He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities. 